Let's kick this thing off with a Weege. Yeah, squad pod. Hey, it works for him. It can work for me. What's up, guys? Another episode. I uh, I wanted to dive in since Vermoto originated in the amateur ranks during the golden age, some people call it. Uh, I wanted to start diving into some of the guys that were really on top back in the day. So I grabbed Ohio legend Sean Reif. So Sean came onto the scene in 2001 and won his first ever attempt at Loretta's. He even won a KTM Junior Challenge at a Supercross, and that opened up the door to a lot of success for him. And off through the ranks he went, winning titles wherever he went. He was very fast, but he got hurt a lot. And as you'll find out, we just kind of dive into his whole amateur career and what he's doing now. So um, enjoy. I've known Sean for about 13 years now. He's even had me at his house to do some filming. We did a verb video out there at his backyard track, which is kind of funny because he builds tracks now for Dream Tracks. And Sean's a great dude. I've known him for a while, so he's very open to tell me everything that he's been through. It's cool to hear his take on how his amateur career went and where his life ended up where it is today. So listen to it. It's uh, it's about an hour, and it, it dives into everything that you would need to know about Sean Rice's amateur career. You need to follow me at Troy Dog Verb. You need to follow at Verb Podcast Network. You need to follow at Vermoto. I mean, if you haven't, like, what are you even doing with your life, you know? So follow everything, click like on everything, engage with us. Like, let's make Vermoto the greatest thing ever in the world, ever. Thanks for listening. All right, Mr. Sean Reif. How are you, my man? Hey, not too bad, Troy. How you doing? I'm doing all right, man. Just catching up with you. You are quite bu- quite the busy man these days. You... Uh, why don't you give a people an update of what you're doing now? Uh, man, uh, since I've uh, kind of walked away from the professional racing side of things, I uh, got a got a kind of a blessing in disguise and started working for uh, Jason Baker, who owns Dream Tracks and uh, also runs and owns the Moto Sandbox down in Florida. Um, Started working for him, uh, I think, in the spring of 2017 and did a couple apprenticeship jobs that summer. And uh, one thing led to another and started, uh, you know, running and managing the Moto Sandbox down in Florida for uh, a couple years and uh, kind of, you know, slowly got into the building and, and things of that nature and, and helping out down there. And one thing led to another and uh, now pretty much just full time on the road, uh, building tracks and trying to carry the Dream Tracks flag. And uh, you know, we obviously do the Red Bull Imagination and the Straight Rhythm, and done all the test tracks for several years. And and uh, yeah, that's about it, man. Just connecting the dots uh, one day at a time, and and uh, building dirt bike jumps. Yeah. So. You you used to build your own tracks at your house, so that's how you kind of have a background in that. It's but how how was it jumping into that that big of a scale thing with with dream tracks? That's that's not something that an everyday person would get a chance to do. No, it's it, exactly um, we you know up here in Ohio we didn't have a lot of resources and facilities, and especially back then, you know. I think I moved to the country where we could build a track when I was around 11 years old, um, got out of the city and got some property with my parents. And, uh, anytime, you know, my dad's buddies would bring a backhoe over or, you know, a, a, a skid steer, you know, they would, when it first started, they would initially get the dirt in place. And then I kind of, I would just kind of talk to them about, Hey, you know, we need to make it like this. And then it got to a point where I'm just like, oh, you know, I ride, I ride the bike. So, I'll, you know, let's rent a dozer and see what we can do pretty much. So over the course of my childhood, I, I got a pretty good idea of how to run equipment, but stepping into a scale of, of, of what dream tracks does and the magnitude of the tracks they build, it was really eye opening And, uh, you know, I had a lot to learn to say the least. Yeah. It's so with, with what you do now, you're just kind of traveling around, uh, wherever it takes you, whatever 
wherever people may need a track. Are you, are you in business for dream tracks or are you kind of going off on your own a little bit? Um, so after uh, working at the sandbox for close to three years, I, I don't want to say like I outgrown it at all. It was, it's still an amazing job. I just think for the point of life of where I was at, I, I I wanted to keep moving forward. Like I didn't want to just do the same thing every day. And I always knew that, you know, building tracks is where my heart was not really maintaining one. Um, So since then I've steadily, worked with Jason and, and yeah, I'm a, I'm a dream tracks operator. Um, me and my dad and actually, you know, we're Jason as well, are moving into kind of starting not necessarily a side business, but like a grading, uh, you know, we do a lot of septic lines and water lines and just, you know, commercial residential construction excavation stuff around, uh, around our place up here in Ohio. Um, but yeah, whenever I'm, whenever I'm building tracks, I'm pretty much, I'm, I'm trying to carry the dream tracks flag as much as possible. Um, you know, uh, the brand and, and all that's there. So I don't see any sense of the, uh, you know, necessarily creating my own track building company in the future. I would like to have my own, you know, construction excavation company. So I'm, slowly working towards towards that for you know for the the days where there's not a track to be built um but yeah as far as the tracks go um i'm just kind of solo you know got a got a little buddy that's helping me up here uh you know run the skiddy and trying to show him the ropes so we could get a nice little crew up around ohio to kind of attack the local states and uh you know just just run it, run it ragged, you know, building whoever, whoever wants to track built, man, we're really reasonable. And, uh, I, I try to do like a weekly special, uh, just a seven day special. We get, get the equipment there and, uh, and, you know, you can typically get the best price if we can, if we can knock it out in a week, you're, you're looking to have something really nice and, and, uh, pretty much have a dream track in your yard, you know, in a week to where, you know, we don't have to come in and, and, uh, spend two, three weeks somewhere to give, to give someone a nice track. You know, we, I look at it like not every track has to be a facility or a big national caliber track. People, people have three, four acres in their backyard and they don't have $50,000 or whatever it may cost to do some big crazy track, you know, we can come in and and give you something really nice still for a reasonable rate. And excuse me, that's kind of where my head's been with it. Um, Just because I grew up racing, I didn't have, I didn't, we didn't have the money or the the assets to, to have a track built. So I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards trying to help out the small guy more than, more than, uh, you know, creating big public tracks and stuff. Uh, but yeah, as far as that goes, trying to represent dream tracks and, uh, and best way I can. And, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. No, it's cool, man. I mean, Ohio could definitely use, uh, somebody with your talent up here. We really don't have much anymore as far as, tracks or even you know people that have tracks at their house you know it's uh it's kind of kind of dead up here these days yeah exactly and i mean i remember growing up there was so many just backyard tracks that weren't even nothing you know crazy or special with just just a nice backyard track that was some of the funnest riding that i've ever done just with the buddies out you know, ripping the same turn a thousand times, getting the ruts deeper for the next time we ride. Like those type of things are, I feel like what made me, uh, love and enjoy two wheels more than the training side of it. And, you know, the just pushing yourself on edge to try and, 
go with Loretta's, even though that's the end goal and you still got to put the work in. Um, I feel like a lot of a lot of the sport nowadays is is just you know from ten years old up or even you know earlier than that. It's just such a schedule and a regiment, and I see a lot of people getting burned out uh, before they're even before it's time to put the big work in. You know, mm-hmm. and I would like to help create people have a fun backyard track, uh, like I said, at a reasonable rate and. And, uh, you know, I, I even offer kind of, not really offer, but I've go, I've built several people tracks and then come back and, and rode with them and, and kind of help them dial their track in and, and, you know, help their kids out, whatever it is. Maybe it's just a day of, of lessons that not necessarily for free by chance, but just, you know, Hey, for a couple of dollars, I'll come ride with you give you a day of training and we can break this thing in, you know, with the guy that built it. And I feel like that's really cool be, being able to still ride and, and hit all the tracks that I've built is, is something that I cherish for cherish for sure. And that's a really cool uh, thing for, for kids have Sean Rife come out and, and uh, learn from, I mean, dude, you are a two time Loretta champ probably should have had more with that that third mode always seemed to get you than the years but but how did okay so how did this dream start man like how did you start riding like what how did how did you get involved in riding and then how did we decide to go to loretta's the first time um so really my parents never raced or anything i mean um my dad was really into skateboarding and, and he had a buddy that had a daughter and he, his buddy got his daughter, a, a, like a P-dub, I believe. And I don't even know how I got my first bike. To be honest, I know it was a JR 50 and I would, my grandparents had a couple acres and I'd go out there and ride in the yard and, and stuff. I think I started riding when I was right at three years old, but I really didn't race until I was um but you know back then the fair race the fair racing series is were so huge and we always had a race at our local fair when we went there for the first time my first race we actually met um bradley baker which is a good buddy of mine um you know still to this day he they kind of his dad owned a motorcycle shop and they were in the you know, they knew about the racing scene a bit more than we did. So once we met them there, it kind of whirlwinded. And then uh, we actually met Tyler Bowers and uh, a couple other people from Columbus uh, pretty early on there, you know, that first year, year and a half. And uh, we started just chasing the local race scene. And, uh, you know, Tim, Tyler, Tyler Bowers' dad, we grouped up with them and went out to the World Mini in Vegas um, for the first time, I believe I was eight years old. Um, I actually got like three top tens or something, just first national. And I think that really sparked my dad into, um, you know, thinking we might have something here. Uh, and then one thing led to another and went to Loretta's when I was first year in 2001. I was, I was eight. Uh, I was nine, uh, obviously riding in the, the, uh, I was riding as an eight year old because my birthday was right before Loretta's. So mm-hmm. I just turned nine, but, um, yeah, I went that first year and, and won it and it just spiraled from there, man. We I actually grew up in the city, uh, up until I was, like I said earlier, like 11 years old. And I just, there was a, a like an abandoned park, like two houses down from us. And no one, only, the only people that went there, they were playing basketball in the concrete. The rest of the ball fields were all, no one played it, nothing was going on. So I, like, had a turn track in the ballpark outfield. And that's pretty much where I practiced um, up until we moved. And, uh, yeah, just kind of, after that moment, it was it was all in. Yeah, and when when did you start to get did you have KTM support when you were on sixty fives and fifties? 
Um, so the same year I won Loretta's, I, me and a couple good buddies, we got into the KTM Junior Supercross Challenge at Indy mm-hmm. that year. And I actually went and I won, um, which that would have been in March. So right after that, um, Zach Osborne's family owned Champion Cycles there in Virginia. And somehow they, I'm not exactly sure, um, but they had reached out and that, that same year we went to World Minis. They actually brought a couple fifties, um, out there for me to race. Cause I had never rode a new bike until that point there at that Supercross. And after I was always on Cobra just cause that was the bike to have, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, once once I won that race and got to ride that new bike, like I just couldn't quit talking about it. I'm like, dude, that like I like that. I like that. So um they brought some some KTM fifties out uh to Vegas and I raced them there and I don't know, I think I won like four out of the five championships that year. And so that the progression on the the, the help from the sponsors really took off when I won that supercross challenge. And, uh, yeah, I think they obviously helped me at Loretta's and throughout that year. And, uh, we were supposed to have a, a nice deal with them. It's the next year I went in the sixties, obviously we were supposed to do like a nice deal with them through KTM. And that, I think at that point they were trying to sell, sell their dealership or, or whatever may have happened on their side. Um, but at that point, Jeff Cernick uh, really stepped up and and uh, he actually bought me bikes out of his pocket and let me take them and 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 uh, that's where I kind of got the Cernick's Honda ride, you know, through him after I won the red is that year that he helped me out American Honda ride and and. Uh, yeah, I really grew a relationship with Jeff and, and really, dude, honestly, it, it's almost like the, <clears throat> the path that I have taken was, was, it feels like it was like already set up. Uh, it wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of like negative push into it. It just all kind of fell together how it was supposed to. And even, even though I didn't, light the pro world up on fire I, at this point i feel like there's a reason why that didn't happen obviously the window is so small for guys to to be legends on a dirt bike you know such mm-hmm. as ricky james you know you could damn near put all their names in a hat you know um there's severals and and there's so many riders that were unreal on dirt bikes that never made it that that made it but didn't make it if that makes sense and now looking back on it and seeing where i'm at now and how much i've i've got to actually stay in the sport and be tied into the you know somewhat of the industry with you know the behind the scenes there at the sandbox like you know watching sexton and Cincerello and all those guys and the grind of of being uh, a champion and um, it's looking back on it all now I can see why my my story took a different path than than uh, you know just becoming a, a motocross champion I feel like that's a huge feat and it's amazing in itself but I might not be the same person I am now if that would have happened and I feel like I've always stayed true to it and that's just, you know, but I'm sure if I went and won national championships, I'm sure I'd be like, yeah, this was, this, ha- this was supposed to happen. Like, you know what I mean? So I guess <laughs> yeah. it's, there's two ways to look at right. it. Um, but, I more than anything, I'm not like, I don't regret anything. Yeah. I'm not, I don't sit around like, Oh, what if, what if like, no, nah, I'm like, this is in front of me now. And, this is what I'm chasing, and I can, I can say that I gave it hell on a dirt bike when I when I raced, and that's all we had. So, time to move on and grow up. Yeah, I mean, back then you were feared. Like you, you were 
everybody knew your name. You were in the magazines, you were in Racer X, you were winning everything. And in 2004, Loretta's, you went two and uh, you had a second and a first in stock and mod, 65. And then you mentioned it earlier, you got the deal with, with Cernix. So did he approach you after that? No, so that year there, uh, 2003, so I won Loretta's in 01, and then I went mm-hmm. to 60s. And the first year in 60s, I wrecked in the first turn of the, that was my youngest year. I actually set the fastest lap time of all the 60s. And like Nico, like Izzy was there, Stroop was there, Osborne, like they were all in the higher 60 class. And I had the fastest lap, like that's just, you know, that's water under the bridge now, but. I crashed in the first turn, the first moto, and, um, like, broke my wrist really bad. Um, and so didn't get the race that year, um, which would have been 2002. 2003, I went back. And during those couple years, whatever deal was supposed to happen with champion cycles at that point, um, had fell through and Jeff stood, stood, Jeff kind of picked up the slack, you know, cause we didn't have the money to buy, you know, when you're riding sixties and fifties that hard, you need several motorcycles. Um, it doesn't sound like it, but you're tearing them up pretty quick, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but Jeff's Jeff kind of helped me out and going into that 2004 year is the year that he, Gave me all the motorcycles, and then we went and won Loretta's. And then, obviously, with his connections, American Honda approached, and we got that deal. And it's different nowadays. I'm not sure how it works, but back then, even though if you had a like a factory amateur ride, it went through a dealership. And oh, okay. that's kind of where you got your bikes they would send the bikes to him or, or however that would work. And then I would go get them, get parts, my oils, all that different stuff through the dealership. Um, which it may be the same now, but it seems like it's all kind of straight to the point anymore with orange brigade and Kawasaki and stuff. It's just, you're an elite rider and we're going to send you straight. We're going to just ship the stuff straight to you. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, got the American Honda ride and as far as that goes still was on track at that point um, went back to Loretta's the next year in 2005 and won some motos I think I won the first moto got some seconds and I just always I love Loretta's I was always fast there but I always had shit luck on gate pick the first motos I always like just put myself in bad positions and I don't even know. I feel like it's just always, if you're not the first five guys out of the gate, it's always so chaotic there just because everyone's so revved up that it's, it's different than your typical national, you know, mm-hmm. it's everyone just, everyone just chased this, this dream all spring and most of the summer going to regionals and qualifiers and, so once you get on that gate, each moto, you know, every one of those motos are like it's your last. So everyone's just pinning it. And the first few laps are chaotic. And I, I just, I seem to always be right in the middle of it. I'd always be coming from 25th up to third or, you know, I, I tend to be chasing there a lot instead of being the chased. That makes sense. Yeah, it's a lot of a lot of time and a lot of motos to for stuff to go bad, you know. So yeah, uh, no, no, it's cool. I mean, Cernix, like if you were a Cernix rider, you were a superstar. Like to me, let me tell you the first time that I actually so I saw you in a magazine. This was about oh five, oh four, oh five at Kenworthy's. Um, I just kind of started racing. So I didn't really know how to use a clutch. It was I had, I had a rough start, dude. It was the 85s were rough for me. But <laughs> at, at Kilmer's one year, I remember after the national, they ran the track backwards, and you came up for an, one of the last amateur days up there. And I think you were you were definitely on 85, but you were you signed up for like B class. Does that sound right? Yeah, I raced yeah. the schoolboy on my super mini. Yeah. 
Okay, so you're on Super Mini, and it seemed like you were racing all day. Like you, you seemed like you were like in five classes. We just would come up and watch you, and you were jumping the Widowmaker, which probably was not too crazy these days, but back then it was huge. And like that's, I remember you crashed and came from the back, and you lapped me. You jumped over my head actually on the Widowmaker, and that's how I, I was like, oh, okay, so that's how fast you're supposed to go, and um, you were gone. So, uh, just kind of kind of go back in those days how did it seemed like you always would jump everything first and you weren't afraid to, to do anything so kind of talk about what it was like in those days to have that equipment and the support and just you had all the gear what you know what was it like being a, a mini superstar i guess like i like i was saying earlier like it it almost felt like it was supposed to be like I never really let all that get to my head in a sense of oh I'm this like you know factory 80 rider I got all this Fox Elite gear unlimited gear and you know there's so many things that not that I would have done different but you know like with Renthal and all these sponsors I had unlimited tires unlimited but I, we grew up from nothing. So if I got one box of gear a year, that was huge. Like, that was like, hell yeah, this is sweet. But it got to the point where Fox would be like, yeah, man, like, you good? You, you, like, you almost need to order some stuff in a sense. And they would always send, you know, before each national, they'd send three sets of gear, you know, Hey, we want you to wear this, this, you know, at this race, this is our new stuff coming out. But it, I almost just, I kind of stayed humble through it all. I think even as a kid, just cause my parents were, like I said, we, we didn't have much of nothing. So they, that was an easy learning process to appreciate what you did have instead of rubbing it in, people's faces in a sense so i just it just felt like it was kind of natural um and not not like pushed pushed on i guess Mm -hmm. but as far as that goes it was absolutely amazing to go from nothing and then be able to look at a magazine and see myself in the fox catalog and then be like oh i'd like to order them boots you know what i mean like it was all so greatly appreciated and i you know i enjoyed every every bit of it honestly um there was a time i mean i think i got 12 motorcycles a year there <laughs> when i first started with honda 1280s i got like six big wheels six little wheels or something something crazy and i just remember going in our garage and got two rough bikes lined up that Half of them are still in crates, you know, at that point, I didn't really have a mechanic or anything. My dad was still working day in, day out and, you know, be get off the school bus at four o'clock, grab a bike, go ride. If some, something happened, break a chain or something, just lean it up and grab another one. Like <laughs> it was, it was really cool, you know, um, yeah. yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have changed any of it for sure. Um, I I think I I kind of wish it was like old times in today's age. Mm-hmm. Just because I not the not even putting any names out there or anything. I just feel like with social media and the whole oh I need to look like this, need to look like that. Like it, I feel like it's hard for kids to appreciate getting anything because they feel like there is a need in a if you don't look like this and you don't have this gear, then you, you know, you're not cool. I, yeah. I you know, I, I kind of back then it, it didn't matter if you had shit gear. Like I yeah. gave away so much gear to my buddies so that they could feel like they had some fresh gear because I didn't want them to feel like, you know, Oh, look at my shit stuff. Like got holes all in it. You know, I, I, will, I always wanted everyone to feel equal in, in that regard. I didn't kind of boast and, and brag about it in a sense to, oh, look at me, you know. 
That's... That ain't really, no matter what gear you got on, if you ain't going fast and winning, it really doesn't matter. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. You could have on, yeah. you could have on work boots and a helmet and cutoffs if you're out there winning. You know what I mean? Yeah. Conversations gonna lean towards you. I don't care what you look like. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's a good point. And I mean, you rode for Honda from '05 to '08, so I mean, you you probably got through some really cool stuff. Didn't they at one point bring you out with the like with the 150, like the debut? Of yeah. It? So. um it was me, Ashley Filick, uh, Brandon Mays, Tyler Bowers, and Barsha. Um, they flew us out to Vegas, and uh, we got to ride the 150s out into the – pretty much they shut all the lights off and had us out in the crowd and then introduced us like one by one, and we fired them up. It was wicked because back then you didn't really – a four-stroke 80 was kind of unheard of, you know. So it's all quiet in there, and then you hear, wah <laughs> firing this thing up inside of inside the hotel riding it up on stage it was that was a really cool uh experience for sure yeah it's wild it's, that that bike's been out that long it's uh it's been quite a bit um and to be honest when i first rode it i i hated it i couldn't <laughs> i i just you know because we were wringing the necks on the on the two-stroke 80s like and it was so much different with engine braking and it felt, it almost felt like a turd, like it's <laughs> no power. And I didn't really like it. I mean, it probably took me a good week to even get used to it. And typically I can jump on, I can jump on a weed eater and feel comfortable. Like, so it, it was pretty weird at first, but, um, Feel like they tried something and it, you know, it may have worked for them a few years or whatever, and it may be in the future, but I don't know. It doesn't seem like you see a lot of them anymore. No, not anymore. You don't, I don't you, even know if they make them. That's a good point. I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah, you don't see many stand out. They're not putting, like, they were putting you guys on that. Like, that's what they were pushing. And now I don't think they, like, I think Cooper Webb was maybe. The biggest uh, success on that uh, thing? Savachi, Cooper and Savachi wrote it uh, a lot, I believe. That's true. Maybe Nelson a little bit? Yep, yep, yep. Jesse Nelson. And theirs were nasty. <laughs> by, the time, by the time they got on them, they had it, you know what I mean? They had it figured out to where I could produce some power out of it, and it probably was a really good motorcycle. Yeah. Yeah, I think Coop had, like, JGR stuff on his, and it was just... It sounded so good. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so in <clears throat> 08, 09, um, you make the switch to Cowie. Uh, team Green? Was that a Team Green? Um, it was, but it wasn't nothing. Um, it wasn't nothing crazy, honestly. Because right then in 06, Oh six, I believe. It was either oh six or beginning of I believe it was oh six, so if I was in oh four I was twelve. Yeah, so I think in oh six or right at the beginning of oh seven mm-hmm. I uh crashed at Oak Hill and first moto, first lap, had the whole shot, was leading wadded up and uh really tore my shoulder up like really bad um popped it out of socket broke my scapula tore my bicep muscle off the bone and we went to the hospital out there and they just said oh, it looks like you got some deep bone bruising so that was on a thursday i actually didn't even get my shoulder put back into place until the following monday when we got back oh wow and it it really it it was like an injury that uh, it's still not like my shoulder to this day is it's trash. Like I'll 100% have to have a shoulder replacement when I'm old. Like they didn't recommend it now cause I'm young and mm-hmm. they, they just were like, dude, if you can deal with the pain and live your life, whatever, like, but when you're 40, 50, whenever it's time, like you're going to have to have a full shoulder 
replacement because what happened, there was a blood clot underneath where the shoulder ball goes. So it wouldn't go back in. And then obviously since I race, the the doctor that done it kind of over tightened it because a lot of people have problems when you blow your shoulder out the back, it'll pop out all the time. And I didn't want to deal with a reoccurring uh, you know, you know, you see it with even AC when he did his shoulder real bad. He uh his would pop out on him. Mm. Um, but they they kind of really over tightened it. And yeah, I think at this point I was just 14 years old, I think. Maybe just about to be 15. Right. Yeah, I would have been 15 later on in that year. So I'm a young kid, pretty athletic, obviously, you know, and I was going to therapy three times a week for 11 months oh, God. and getting absolutely nowhere. So what had happened is the, the shoulder itself lost blood flow and it just, it just started disintegrating. So now my shoulder ball, like on x-ray it almost looks like a golf club. It's disintegrated down to next to nothing. Instead of growing with me, it stayed the same size and started kind of deteriorating. Um, so I, I don't have a deltoid. My labrum's smoked. I have hardly any. Like if I run an excavator mm-hmm. for three or four days in a row, like I, I feel like I'm racing with it again. It's it's painful as as hell to be honest but um yes yeah, so really, that was a big this, setback i was still i was still in a good position with with racing i when i was 13 i was doing an indoor same thing super mini in the schoolboy class i got the start was blitzing through the whoops come you know back then the arena cross whoops were pretty dang big and if you were going to blitz them on a super mini, you had to, you know, you had to get up in fifth gear and kind of where you would lug coming in and then let it start picking up speed. But by the end, I was just going too fast and uh, kind of went up on the berm after, stalled it, and was falling back down into the berm. And some kid hit me in the lower leg, compound fracture my tib and fib. So that took me out, you know, that whole year I had an external fixture on my leg for like five months. Um, you know, then that whole, then right that next year going into Oak Hill, we were feeling good, riding good. That speed was there. Like, um, then I did my shoulder, did my shoulder in. Then why I started riding again and, uh, regionals at Sunday Creek, I actually, Tucked the front end, first lap of a race. They watered the hell out of the concrete. You know how that track used to get so hard. They oh, yeah. watered it super bad. I washed the front end out, stuck my leg out, blew my blew my knee out, meniscus, ACL, all that. So now I'm in therapy for my shoulder and my knee at the same time. And it was just the, the timing of events with them injuries were the worst timing possible because it was literally 13 then close to 15 then 15 again and you know this sport dude them three years right there are the main one it goes so fast so then kind of after them three major injuries in a row it wasn't like a collarbone or or you know a, a fractured arm or something you know what i mean like they were major I had like nine surgeries in three years on three different parts of my body and at the most crucial time. And it was just a hole that I was in. So I was so deep in a hole with speed and confidence and, and all that stuff. And not to mention the guys that I'm racing, you know, it wasn't like I had a guy to race. It was Tomac, Barsha, Treadle, Baggett. Um, you know, Jason Anderson at times, like, and even so many more that I could even wrap my mind around that were really good riders. I mean, Trent Pugmire, PJ Larson, there's so many dudes 
that were really good then. And uh, it just, it, I never got back to that. Ne- I was just, that next level speed, I was just right under it. And I never could seem to get over that hump, if that makes sense. The three-year setback really determined if I was going to be a, a pro champion, if that makes any sense. It, yeah, yeah like it said, does. It, it just, yeah. No, I mean, you, you said it all there. I mean, you had the golden age of amateur motocross at your fingertips. You beat the best that of that group, and um, that, that setback, it's just, how do you come back from that when you destroy a shoulder like that? You just can't. And if you, like you say, you still have problems with it today. Like that, that even makes it cooler in your Loretta's results in 09 because, I mean, you're, you're racing Dino or sorry. Uh, yeah. 09. Yeah. Dino, Travis Baker. Right. I mean, there was, it was still pretty heavy. Yeah. And I mean, you, you went three, two 36 and in, in 450A. So the speed is there. It's just that one. The 36 was a straight bummer. Because I come out, I'm in, like, second. I think Dino was in, like, 12th or, you know, he was buried. Me and Baker were tied in points because he went 2-3 and I went 3-2. I had a great chance to win the championship. Kid wads up in front of me after the sand section. I run into his bike and it folds my rotor, my front rotor, over. So I was first lap I was out that is a bummer yeah and I'm like are you kidding me yeah right and but dude honestly like I was so far off everyone's radar at that point that if if I won that I don't even know that the outcome would have changed that's a good point I mean you still honest. you still had the Fox deal you know and Dino <laughs> and all them were already on Canada Cowie like they were already set to like, you know what I mean? Already set. Right. They're pro. Like, there, was, there really wasn't even, there, just, there wasn't no room for, you know, that stuff's kind of already determined before you get there, I guess. Right. I mean, look at your buddy Weeks um, that year. Look at your buddy Weeks that year. He, he might have had something set up, but the rock star deal he took to the Nationals with him. So. You know, it was yeah, exactly. What he win six six motos. He definitely. What he go six for six? I believe. I think he did, right? I don't know if that was that year or the next year. He went. He definitely went undefeated in uh, pro sport, four fifty pro sport, or, or something like that. And that's what's absolutely insane with this sport. Sometimes is if you're not in the know how and the who's who's. You really ain't nobody. You take a guy that goes to Loretta's, goes, I think he at least went five for six. He might have went six for six. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he was undefeated all weekend. Let me look it up. Yeah. I could be wrong, but how do you go to Loretta's in the pro class? And he wasn't racing no bums. No, he had, he had, he had Malcolm mean, he in was, there. He was racing some dudes that had factory rides. Exactly. Yeah, it was, uh, it's good showing for sure. But, but the fact that, you know, you, you come back from your shoulder like that and then almost win a title that you're at Loretta's and then you decide to just go, go pro for 2010 on your own. Well, yeah. And what, what really speeded my kind of big bike program up is when I was just, um, right after a schoolboy year, um, the Nutter center obviously was a big, arena cross um race during that time that was one of the the races on the schedule yeah well my what was supposed to be b year i raced the nutter center which was the first race of the year it always was in like february or january february we just was getting the itch you know it was cold in ohio we've been riding indoors and we just was like hey you know let's go see what we can do Mm -hmm. you know like so I actually ended up qualifying. I got like 
I don't even know, maybe sixth or something, fifth or sixth in the arena cross. Well, that made me score pro points. Oh, yeah. And so then I got bumped to pro without even being able to do my B year. Where um, I believe Malcolm Stewart and Ian Treadle and a couple other dudes kind of did the same thing, but they petitioned back down. And I didn't really realize that you could even petition back down or that there was a cut line or a deadline on when you could do that. So we were just like, hell with it. Like, looks like we're going pro, you know? Right. And uh, so... Yeah, I mean, then that kind of sped that up, and we went, uh, yeah, obviously went to Loretta's in 09 on the 450 and 250, and, and uh, you know, did that showing, and then there was nothing really on the table. So I just, I went to Canada right after Loretta's. Instead of going to the, like, the big nationals, I went up to Canada to Walton, uh, the last round there, and... I believe, uh, podium, the first moto on the 450. And that, uh, that obviously opened up some people's eyes up there. And then that, that leading edge team kind of came to me with an offer for 2010 to do the whole series. And we just, you know, decided to, to take it just because there wasn't really, we were going to spend money regardless whether we chased the outdoor championship down here or got help to do it up there. Yeah. And at the point of where I was at, we thought that, you know, that was a better idea. And that went decent. Um, I kind of stretched my Achilles pretty bad at round two. So I kind of battled that all year. But um, I went up and won the first round, got a, a third, the first moto, the second round. And then, um, you know, the third round, I, I went like, two seven or something for third overall and then the fourth round i went one one i think i won three or four of the overalls and um was on the podium any like all the races i was there besides one i was at least on the podium um but then that team like they come to us that same year or you know going into the next year with the same kind of um offer and we were just kind of like taken back by it a little bit because at first they didn't really know me outside of the showing I did the year before at Walton. And then I come up, I'm winning races, podium every time, like, and then they pretty much offered the same thing, which wasn't much of nothing other than a bike to race, a practice bike for home and like 1500 bucks to win an overall. And I'm just like, I'm not going to come up and do the same damn program i'll just race down here right like, yeah no i don't so, blame you yeah it's, so yeah that was okay so weeks he went one 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 and 450a and then 250a he went four three five so okay i mean it was, it was good but yeah no that that was a good run but back to your point though you that was after you did supercross because didn't you train at wyndham's during the winter well that yeah that was for the 2011 that was 2011 okay yeah okay those years kind of went together and dude and and honestly like i i personally didn't know what it took to to make it at that level I didn't have the people around me. I didn't have the experience of it. Even though I was training at Wyndham's, it was like his, what, 14th season. And his training was a hell of a lot different than a kid my age. He already knew, like, he was such a smooth rider. And he just, he was in shape already. So he didn't have to get in shape. He just stayed in shape. So, like, his, his idea of what, he already, you know what I mean? Like, he already had made it. He was a legend. He was kind of slowly on his way out mm-hmm. to where I was not even breaking the crust of it. So what I, and nothing against him. What I'm not, I'm not going at him at all. I'm just saying 
I should have been doing a hell of a lot more than I was. But at the same time, when you're a 16-year-old kid and you're watching this guy that's done, you know, pretty much flew the moon on a dirt bike. Yeah. How do you go against the program that he's doing? You know what I mean? Yeah. No, he's doing he's doing man training and you're just a kid, you know? Yeah, like he's 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 almost like just he's staying where he's at. Like he's already on a program and he's already so in shape just because of, you know, the way he rode and the years of, of the hard work, the years of, he's already built a base up that now he's just, he's just going motions at this point to stay in shape. And I was, I was so far behind the, the eight ball on being prepared that it, it really wasn't even funny to be honest like my pro showing was kind of embarrassing in my opinion like it's cool you know top tens and super crosses but i should have realistically been no worse than fourth fifth like i should i should have been at a position to be a fill-in rider whenever somebody went down or, or even got my own shot at a factory ride, had I known the work to put in, mm-hmm. um, and, and the process of, of, uh, what it took. And I didn't even still didn't know until I seen, until I seen the work that they were doing at the sandbox, like day in, day out and the amount of effort and the amount of people it took, the the right people around you from diet and this and and the off the bike on the bike like i didn't know until i went there and then i after witnessing it i'm like fuck dude i was so far off of this it's not even funny no wonder i couldn't you know go 35 minutes and then in the same argument i didn't have the best suspension i had i had good suspension for you know, factory connection and, and they do great suspension, but I didn't have the testing. I wasn't testing day in, day out. I didn't have the motor because we needed something reliable. Like when you're out there riding a bull on them rough ass tracks, you're going to get tired quicker, you know? Yeah. So like I said before, all those things mounted up to where I'm at today and I don't have only regret I would have, if any, would be not putting the effort in when I did go pro to to uh, make a statement. But, you know, like I was talking about that hole I was in behind all them dudes. I don't I don't know that I came out of that hole until I started building tracks, because now I'm like, OK, let's put that stuff to bed. Like now I'm in not my own lane, but now I'm. Now I'm creating my life the way I want it. I'm not chasing something that I once was anymore. Like I'm, I'm good with it. We, we had a hell of a time. I met so many good people, traveled the world several times and I've done more to this day than anybody I know outside of the obvious people, you know? So I'm, 100% 100% content. Um, I've, I've been able to give back so much, even just, I've built probably four tracks right around my hometown that are badass tracks, you know, and it feels super good to be able to do that and actually work hard. And, and, you know, obviously I have two kids now and, and, it's cool to be able to show them that you have to work hard to make it. And I feel like it, at the same sense, if I would have went pro and actually, you know, chase championships and done all that, those feelings would have been amazing as well. But that stuff comes to an end, you know, it doesn't last forever. And I feel like what I'm doing now is something I can, I can teach my kids to run equipment or, you know, show them different than I would have if I was just racing week in, week out. 
Well said, man. I mean, that's, that's honestly perfect because you're, you're established in your life now and you're very successful. And like you said, the racing thing doesn't work out for so many, but look at what you accomplished with your career like that. You've accomplished more than, than so many would love to even now. So just, just know that you had a hell of a run as an amateur and and although you didn't accomplish the, the pro stuff, I mean, you still had, you still were there. You still were putting in results. So, um, yeah, co- for sure, man. It's like I said, I, I would recommend racing to anybody that's wanting to do it just because the things you learn, the things that you gain. And as a kid, you know, going to Florida for a month or two, you know, by myself with a mechanic, having to do my own laundry and having to get up and, and, you know, put forth effort without someone standing over top of you. Like you, you grow up a little faster. Um, not in the sense of, of like age, but just mature wise. And I think in this, this world nowadays, the faster you can mature, the faster you're going to be able to learn and, and follow your heart and, you know, make them choices to, you know, pretty much make the right decisions. I think racing dirt bikes, you have to make a lot of fast decisions on the track, off the track. You gotta, if you're, if you're looked at by the industry or whatever, you've got to hold this reputation and, you know, you don't want to do, you don't want to do a bunch of stupid stuff and, and that makes you look bad. So then as a human, when you're out in the regular world, you've been holding the reputation for so long that it makes you be a good person. You know that there's eyes on you and, and you know, it's a good learning mechanism, even if you don't make it pro or, you know, just chasing the amateur thing. Yeah. It's, it's a ton of money and it's a, it's a lifestyle and it's a grind and it's, it's, it's everything that it should be, but there's a, so many positives from it um, that I can take even to what I'm doing now. And, and it, it really, uh, it really was an experience and I, I wouldn't not recommend it. Uh, you know, the life lessons you learn from doing it, you know, growing up, but I will say that there is a time to, to shit or get off the pot. And that's kind of where I was at. I was 25 years old, 24 years old. Um, you know, me and my dad started getting into, you know, getting head to head because it's not working out. You know, we've been facing this for close to 20 years and it's not panning out like it was, you know, like it was supposed to or like we thought it would. And I just said, you know what, it's if I don't start figuring my life out right now, I'm going to be in a bad spot in 10 years. Like I don't want to, you know, dirt biking's awesome. But once you get to a point, you're not really doing anything other than, you know, nothing, not at anybody. I'm not, like I said before, I'm not saying any names or whatever, but just chasing the, the pro thing over and over and trying to make night shows just for an Instagram story. Like it, it, it's like it prolongs a lot of people's future. And yeah. if I have anything to say to whoever, you know, that may chase this thing, you've got to kind of know when enough's enough to move forward and, and start gaining and building something for yourself because nobody's going to help you. The, the older you get, the less help you're going to have. And, you know, we all know that this sport doesn't pay like crazy if you're riding around in 20th. So, right. Um, it's, it's cool to, to have a, you know, Hey, I made the supercross this weekend, you know, but at the end of the day, it's, it's another story. And I would like to help more people that race get into building or excavating or, or something a part of the industry that way they can still feel the joy of being a part of the sport because it's in all of our blood. You know, we, every one of us live and I still watch every, every national, every supercross. Like I can, 
I can set back and fanboy it up and say, dude, these dudes are absolutely insane. Like, and not feel like have one piece of hate towards it, even though I didn't make it. I can, you know, it's simply like, this was great. And I'm, I'm blessed to have this job and opportunity. And Jason and his family took me in with open arms and we've done a lot of cool stuff. And, uh, gonna try and continue to grow and and you know hopefully in the future maybe even set up uh an apprenticeship style thing to where people people there, there's so many people in racing that don't quit because they don't know what to do you know what i mean yeah they, don't, they just keep going you you've grown up in it so long that you don't really know what to do there's times that i'm still like what like I don't have a track to build right now, but what, like, well, so what do I do? It's not like I'm hurting for money or nothing, but I used to go load up every day and go ride every weekend. We're racing. Like it's such a schedule in racing that once you stop, you, it's, it's kind of like, what do you do? Like I picked up playing cornhole and golf and like just hobbies to, you know, you're just always on go mode because we, it's bred into us. So. Like I said, I'm. Uh, I would like to start something. I've got my eyes set on on bigger stuff than just building. I want to try and help give back to, you know, the guys racing and and just share my story and let them know, like, dude, there's more, there's more to life than than the dirt bike in a in a sense. Um, and there's other things that we can we can all band together and and create some pretty cool stuff. Uh, you know, just to let people know that there is an out of it. Like there's other, there's things to do to stay in the sport that, you know, keeps you tied to it and makes you feel like you're a part of it still. There you go, people. Sean Rife. That was a cool listen. I mean, I think it's really cool how he dove into why he believes he didn't make it as a pro. You know, there is more to life than racing and he's found his niche with a very successful building career so far. And he's a dad, family man, just a good dude all around. Ohio is blessed to have him up here building tracks because we literally have nothing. So thanks, Sean, and thank you for listening and staying on this long. Uh, next week, we'll be back with a new show. And uh, we're going to really make it a show next week. So stay tuned on that. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.